Welcome to season four of The Empty Chair, a podcast from Penn South Africa. I'm your host, Nadia Davids, and I'm the current president of Penn SA. Every year on the 15th of November, Penn centers throughout the world mark the day of the imprisoned writer. And at each event, there's an unoccupied chair. This chair symbolizes those who cannot be with us because they have been jailed for their writings. And it is from the symbol that our podcast takes its name. Each of our episodes is dedicated to a writer in prison or a writer who has been subject to some form of abuse by the state. And at the end of each episode, our guests pay them tribute, offering a message of solidarity and thanks, sometimes in the form of a poem or a quote. In this episode, we stand in solidarity with author and investigative journalist Christopher Acosto Alfaro and director and editor of Penguin Random House Peru, Geronimo Pimentel Prieto. In January 2022, they were both convicted of aggravated defamation for the publication of the book Plato Como Cancha, an unauthorized biography of politician and businessman César Acuna, who is also a three-time presidential candidate. Acosta and Pimentel were sentenced to two years suspended imprisonment and the payment of civil damages of almost 100,000 US dollars. Penn South Africa and Penn International call on the Peruvian authorities to guarantee the full exercise of human rights, including freedom of expression, which is enshrined in the Peruvian constitution, and to drop the charges against Acosta and Pimentel. You can read more about the intricacies of their case in the show notes. In this episode, I'm delighted to say that our chair is Cindy Lee McBride, and she's joined by our guests Sean Jacobs and Ben Williams for an exploration of transatlantic literary culture, digital publications, and ways of reading. Cindy Lee McBride is a writer from Johannesburg and a PhD candidate at the Center for African Studies at the University of Basel in Switzerland. I think a lot of the conversation around books is situated as arts, but book development in South Africa and the book chain is such a big problem, you know, and in the bigger sense, investing in books, kids' books, books in other languages in South Africa is so critical. You know, it's the cause that we should be talking about after climate change because it's hectic. It's insane that it's not a bigger topic of discussion in the country. Sean Jacobs is an associate professor of international affairs at the New School in New York City, but also the founding editor of the much-storied Africa is a Country, a size of opinion, analysis, and new writing. He was born and grew up in Cape Town, South Africa. I think it's interesting that in South Africa, except for the kind of old mining capital who have supported the arts, like, you know, Oppenheimer, through like the way that they've operated in South Africa, that the new elite in South Africa, the post-94 elite linked to kind of the new project, right? They buy soccer clubs or a bull, the most expensive bull in the South African McDonald's franchises. It's interesting that they've never really seen the need to support the arts. Ben Williams is the publisher of the pioneering the Johannesburg Review of Books, which has just brought out its 50th issue. He's been involved in South African and African literature, books and publishing for two decades formerly the head of marketing at Exclusive Books and a literary editor for the Sunday Times. He also holds a master's in fine art from Lesley University, Cambridge. When I think of South African-American relations, the connection in music between the two countries is so incredibly close, and yet the, the traditions are distinct. 
And then of course the literary connection is incredibly rich. It does feel like there are two weird industrial and post-industrial, colonial and post-colonial countries that are similar in many respects that allow for a kind of odd fellow understanding in terms of world nations. Thank you for joining us in this conversation. Welcome to episode six of season four of Pin South Africa's The Empty Chair, a transatlantic conversation. My name is Cindy Lee McBride, and I'm really pleased to be in conversation with Sean Jacobs, joining us from New York City, and Ben Williams in Santa Fe. I'm in Basel in Switzerland. So I've been quite a big fan of this podcast since it began. But the same is also true for both Africa's a Country and the Johannesburg Review of Books. And I count myself pretty lucky to have written for both publications. But this is my first time speaking with both Ben and with Sean. And it would be really great to know more about you in your own words. So if each of you could maybe tell us a bit more about what you do, how you came to be doing it, and what you're up to right now. I'm originally from Cape Town. I always like to say that I, I grew up on the Cape Flats. I went to school there, and I went to the University of Cape Town. And I also come from a very working-class family. My father was a gardener, which is also how, I mean, I could go on and on about this, which is also how I started first caring about media because he worked for a judge and I would go with him and I would, you know, develop an interest in newspapers. It wasn't the, the greatest, it was, you know, just apartheid, but like that's when I first sort of um, got about reading. My mother was a domestic worker. She was a migrant from the Karoo. And I, would, I was like the first person in my family to, to go to university. I ended up in the U.S. mostly. I got a Fulbright scholarship. And I think I met Ben after I came back to South Africa, after I did the Fulbright, I came to work in South Africa for IDASA. And I also worked briefly as a journalist. So I have a mix of experiences as a journalist, as a political researcher. And then finally, I decided to do a PhD at the University of London um, in political science. And subsequent to that, I became a boring academic. So I'm, I worked briefly at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And then I joined the New School in New York. and. The New School is sort of an interesting place. It's a very atypical American university, and it allows for me to do the, this kind of work that I do with Africa's country. Cool. Thank you, Sean. Ben? Right. So I suppose a somewhat complicated personal history. I was born in Denver, Colorado, and uh, schooled in Chicago, and then directly after that moved to South Africa, where I lived for 25 years, and worked primarily in the books industry during that time. So uh, I have started a couple of book startups and eventually became the uh, Sunday Times literary editor and the general manager for marketing at Exclusive Books. So books and the books value chain has always been uh, quite important to me. My degrees are also related to books. I've got an undergraduate degree in creative writing and uh, also went to the University of Cape Town where I worked with uh, the creative writing folks there and got a, an MA in creative writing. And I've also got an MFA in creative writing from uh, Lesley University in Cambridge. Uh, and uh, most recently came to the United States on what was meant to be a somewhat temporary sojourn. Um, turned out to be not that because of growing children and the small matter of the global pandemic. So those two things have uh, 
kept us settled in Santa Fe for the time being, but I continue to publish the JRB from here. Great. Thank you both very much for situating yourselves. Um, so maybe we could just move on to speaking about Africa as a country and the Johannesburg Review of Books. So Sean, could you tell us a bit about the motivation for founding Africa as a country? So when I was in grad school at the University of London, I got a fellowship at the New School. It's funny that I work at the New School now, but I was a graduate student. I came to the New School and it was a couple of days before September 11th. And what was clear after September 11th, you know, when people were starting to like write online more. So this was like the beginnings of like the first iterations of blogs is that there was a particular way that people were writing about Africa. And mostly I was obsessed with media, how media was writing about Africa. And at that point, unlike now where it's a little bit more dispersed and there's all different kinds of voices, although unequal, mostly then the New York Times, I would say, CNN, the kind of major American media, and you, to some extent, some of the, if you think Euro-American media, The Guardian, the BBC, they would set like the agenda about how people would talk about Africa. And so the first kind of blogging that I did was on a website that I called Leo Africanus, which, which is me sort of imagining myself in this guise of this like 16th century um, Moroccan diplomat who has his own interesting life. And he wrote a book called The Description of Africa. So I was imagining that I was doing that kind of work of talking back to the West. So I did that for about, I would say four years and out of that grew Africa as a country. So I would say how it started was primarily to react to the way that people were talking about Africa, which is mostly American experts talking about Africa in terms of development, policy, American foreign policy, and occasionally gross misrepresentations, right? Reducing it to certain kind of tropes. And some of those things are real, like war, famine, but making that the only trope and relying on this sort of there's a correspondent in Johannesburg, and maybe there's a correspondent in, in Abidjan and somebody in Addis, and that's it. And those people cover the whole continent. So pointing out the contradictions of that journalism was the initial impetus for Africa as a country. What happened over time is that it became something else. You know, There was a point at which the online world changed. So if in the beginning, the point is to talk back, there was a point when social media like Twitter and Facebook, I would say that's the end of the first decade of the 2000s, meant that anybody could just kind of post about anything. So they didn't need me or Africa as a country to sort of say, go check out this, go check out that. So then that's when Africa as a country made a transition to say there are topics or there are authors or there are people, there are ideas that we'd like you to know about. So it moved away from just media criticism to publishing essays, opinion, you know, uh, new writing that it didn't do in the beginning. And might I add that it has grown to become a global phenomenon. Let me be immodest on your behalf, Sean. <laughs> Africa is a country is uh, the leading intellectual African online platform, I think. It's an incredible achievement and an amazing resource for people who want to know about knowledge production in Africa, but on non-academic terms for the most part. And that's the key thing. So accessible, mm -hmm. but strident in the best way and trenchant and huge. I mean, the, the following is, is absolutely massive. It's a it's a gigantic website and long may it prosper. <laughs> I will use that in our next um, PR blitz. There you go. You can quote me. <laughs> can I also add to that? I mean, as an aspiring, boring academic, I also think it's important to think about it academically. And I think a lot of people use it in that way. And it's cool to see how news and 
analysis can make that leap. It doesn't only have to be in inaccessible journals. But speaking of journals, Ben, can you tell us a bit about how the Johannesburg Review of Books began? Sure. And I should say that we just published our 50th issue and celebrated our fifth anniversary. That feels like a milestone. Uh, Whether it is or not is a question others can answer. (laughs) But uh, it was a lot of work to get to 50. And it started quite memorably for me, a few days before my second child was born. And I owe my wife a debt of gratitude for that one, allowing me to proceed with this project while at the same time having another child. Um, So it began with a touchy moment of unhappiness that sort of built into a little snowball of rage. (laughs) The best publications come from rage, right? So having worked in the world of books and uh, lived in literature my entire life, and having lived in South Africa for a almost two decades by the point that we started the JRB. It was apparent to me uh, that everyone in Africa knew that it was raining books in Africa, but no one else in the world really knew that. And the literary metropolitans remained in New York and London, and to some extent, some of the other ones, Sydney and some other places, very Anglophone. But there was no major publication on the continent that was trying to leverage the literary production into making Africa a center of literary criticism in particular. You know, Johannesburg is not known as a literary center the way New York is or London. Lagos, the same. Nairobi, the same. And some of the Northern African metropolitans, the same. So we thought, okay, well, Joburg is a literary center. Let's make sure that it has a proper outlet as a literary center. And the idea came to us that we should start literary publication, a a review of books. And that the scope would not be limited to African books, but the writing should primarily come from Africans in the African diaspora, because that is how you get centering as a literary moment, is if the writers are the people from the marginalized spaces. So uh, the Johannesburg Review of Books primarily just publishes African and to a certain extent African diaspora writing. And that's the gap that we were trying to fill, is to make a non-academic critical literary outlet for the incredible burgeoning literary scene in South Africa and on the continent, and to fill a space that was otherwise unfilled. Our unofficial motto is Africa Writes Back. So that was the idea, to create a space for Africa to write back in a literary critical way that was not necessarily an academic journal way, but open to the public, free to read and that tackled the big books of the day, but from an African perspective. Can I add two other quick things based on what both of you said earlier about, so one, making academic writing accessible to like a popular audience. That's something that I've always grappled with because I worked as a political researcher and I worked for IDASA from 97 till 2001. And at IDASA, there were many academics who were working there, but they wanted to be journalists or they wanted to do popular writing. And I worked for their political information service. And there's when I first saw, that's when we did some of the first sort of like web-based publications, like weekly newsletters. So that kind of writing that takes kind of complicated ideas and want to translate them to general audiences. A lot of it, I think, comes out of my time of working at IDASA and also because of my frustration earlier with journalism. I would say the second thing is that Africa as a country also has a longer genealogy. I see Africa as a country as basically the descendant of mostly two traditions. Well, I would say three. One is, I think, the the sort of post-war 
at first attempts, and I think Ben kind of knows some of this history, but there were Africans operating in Europe, particularly in France, London. So the presence African is sort of like in, in Paris is an example of this. But the one that I really took for inspiration was Transition, which is the magazine that was produced by Rajat Nioji out of Uganda, and where you had some of the most robust debates about what is post-colonial Africa after sort of that first, you know, there was a number of countries that became independent, right, after Ghana. And then you had like all these countries leading up into the early 60s, both in English-speaking, French-speaking Africa. So you had Achebe, Sohinka, etc. you know, even Kwame Nkrumah, Ali Mazrui, Nadine Gordimer, um, debating in the pages of Transition. Transition then went through various guises. It eventually, I think, was bought by Harvard. And I think now it's a sort of more kind of a literary magazine. But in the beginning, it was something that was really robust and like engaging in public discourse. Secondly, quickly, was when I came to the U.S. Um, in the mid-90s, I was struck by the amount of opinion magazines, opinion journalism. And this, again, is an intellectual culture in the U.S. that dates back to the beginnings of the Cold War, those kind of intellectuals, dissent, etc., from the early 60s. But yeah, I'm thinking more of the nation, the new republic, Having access to those, uh, Emerge magazine, which was a magazine mostly in sort of black intellectual culture in the U.S., Souls, which came out of uh, by Manning Marable from Columbia University. So being in the U.S. and being exposed to that, again, I was like, I would like to replicate that at some level, at some point. And then finally, I would say one of the ironic things about South Africa is South Africa had probably its most robust opinion journalism at its worst time in the 1980s, I would say leading off from the like late 70s through the 80s and into the early 90s was some of the best. I go back and I read some of that stuff again. Staff writer, Andres Oliphant and everybody around him and Sipo Sopamla and the stuff that they produced with Staff Writer, photography. Of course, they did a lot of fiction, but also just kind of attempts, if you want, at sort of literary nonfiction. And then there was those opinion magazines like Work in Progress, those ones from the early 80s, Grassroots, etc. Newspapers like the Weekly Mail, not the later Mail and Guardian, but the Weekly Mail, Freya Wirkblatt. And of course, those things all died in the early 90s. But that's literally what I'm trying to replicate with Africa as a country. And part of it is also, I am very aware that I'm doing it as somebody who's very much kind of formed by South Africa. So yeah, it's trying to have this, this continental remit or reach or the way it thinks about itself is a kind of pan-Africanism in a way, but it's very much a publication that comes out of South Africa. And I will just say one last thing. I'm also very much influenced. I worked on Chimurenga in like the early days. I was sort of credited as a contributing editor, but just being like around, you know, I was around with Ntone and I was reading essays, copy editing things. The combination of all those things. So, I, you know, at first I said, yeah, it was being located in New York where I've lived since the early 2000s, and being sort of confronted with these images of Africa. But as for like the style, the tone, the approach, how we want to intervene, and also Books Live, I mean, I know Ben didn't mention that, but like Books Live, which I think is a sort of a Joburg review of books version one. It was, yes. In all those things, I picked up what I wanted to achieve, I would say later with Africa as a country. Yeah, you're right. I should mention that Book SA and then later incarnation as Books Live was the forebear of 
the Joburg Review of Books, except for it was a more commercially oriented online publication. It was sort of more like a South African Publishers Weekly or a bookseller type of publication, whereas the JRB is strictly about trying to promote African literary criticism. So I think that's the distinguishing thing about the JRB compared to a lot of other African literary endeavors is that where our focus is book reviews, our focus is book criticism. And that's the hardest thing to do is to get a book, is to write a book review and then to edit it and to publish it. Uh, it's easier to grab a poem or a short story, let me tell you. So, so African literary criticism is sort of our distinguishing factor. But I would also count Chimarenga, I mean, you know, all, all respect due to our ancestors, as it were. Chimarenga would be in there, still alive and thriving, of course. Then there's Bakwa, which we looked at very carefully. Uh, there's Brittle Paper, the OG you know, uh, which is uh, not quite as old as Bakwa and Chimarenga, but also had the global impact that we all aim for, Brittle Paper. And of course, um, the other thing I should mention is that it helps to be slightly techie. That's the other half of my life. And so on the one hand, I'm involved in books and literature. On the other hand, I'm involved in all things digital. And there came a moment, as Sean was saying, when Web 1 turned into Web 2, when it became quite feasible to produce a world-class publication on the cheap. <laughs> and it's funny because that is that is transitioning away again now. It's harder now to start up a website than it was when we started because the web is more complicated, it's more expensive, um, there's more there's more calls on bandwidth than there used to be. But it used to be simply just a case of combine a cheap server with WordPress and you can do something. It's not quite as simple as that anymore. But that's how Book SA started and Books Live. And I got a lot of technical understanding from that on how to, how to run websites and, and build literary publications. So uh, that was a lovely coming together there during those heady days of Web 2. And we still are a Web 2 publication, the JRB. But it was nice to be able to build it properly <laughs> from the start. I'll just add two more before we move on. We say that we can. Oh, yeah. Because it probably spoke in English and Afrikaans. Sandile mm. Dikeni, Andre de Tuey. You know, I was at UCT, so I was in classes with the Tway and with Hilomi, who I know went somewhere else politically. But the South African, I think, is crucial in the story also for just cultivating this thing that I later would see in America. And I think the other one, which I will mention, is the Southern African Review of Books, right. which I think Rob Turrell. in that sort of Yidi post-90 period, it was around for a little bit. I don't know what happened, and then it died. It was sort of the South African attempt at being the LRB, it didn't entirely succeed. But again, you saw little promises and uh, it had its own history, right? It has its own sort of longer history, but you could see like, oh, okay, that's something I'd like to do. Yeah, that was Rob Turrell's publication. Yeah. It was a print publication. And I believe the entire thing is archived on the Internet Archive. So that's something that we can go and, and check out. If you go to uh, archive.org and go to the Wayback Machine or, or just search Southern African Review of Books, I think you can find the whole scanned thing, which is amazing. Is that the one where Kutsi wrote that essay about rugby? Ooh, quite possibly. About the 95 World Cup? Yeah, quite possibly. It's very interesting to hear you discuss your ancestors, some of which are still very active now, and it's very encouraging to think about. There is actually an abundance of really important publications doing different kinds of criticism and different kinds of analysis still. So thinking then about a group and a collective and a team, maybe you could tell us a bit about what your teams are like. Who is working at the JRB? Who is working at Africa as a country at the moment? 
Sure. So our incredible editor, Jennifer Malik, who is there from issue one and has produced and, and, and shipped all 50 issues, is our single full-time paid staff member. She is full-time with the JRB, and the publication would not exist without Jennifer, who is also, like me, a person with a toe in the world of tech, a toe in the world of books, a toe in the world of online publishing, and is also a crack editor. And that's the key thing, is you need someone who has the editorial nous to take the beaten gold and turn it into something that sparkles on the internet. So all praise and, and consideration are due to her. And we, along with her, have a masthead of contributing editors, including Efemia Chela and Panache Chigumadzi and Simon von Skalkvig, who is our academic editor. Jennifer agreed to be the editor, and then we went and we decided that we needed to have at least three literary patrons in Johannesburg. So we had uh, Ahmad Dangor and Ivan Vladislavich and Makosa Zanankaba, and those are the founding patrons. Of course, Ahmad has since passed away, which is very tragic. But Ivan and Makosa Zana have provided incredible moral support through the years. Then along with Jennifer, the editor, we have a editorial masthead. There's, as I mentioned, Panache Chigumadzi, uh, Bongani Madondo and Henrietta Rose Innes are our contributing editors. Then there's Efemia Chela, who's a contributing and francophone editor. Uh, Victor Dlamini is our photo editor. Rustam Kozain, our poetry editor. Then we have two city editors, uh, Nick Mflongo and Liduru Malingani. And then Simon von Skalkvik is our academic editor. And supporting them is an editorial advisory panel of a whole uh, crew of other literary figures who have also supplied invaluable support through the years. Before I give you a sense of the setup of Africa's country, it's sort of funny listening to the masthead and who's involved with Joe Burke of your books because the same names, like you said yourself, like you've written in Africa's country. So some of the same names keep popping up. And I was just sort of smiling because Henrietta Rosinas and I, we were actually on Varsity newspaper at the same time. So the world is like that. It's a small world. Anyway, Africa's country, I would say, is now 12 years old. And in that time, until 2019, it mostly operated with volunteers. Everybody was unpaid. And it had various guises of referring to this whole group of people that are helping out, editing, who sort of regularly write as a collective. But you couldn't really expect these people to do things uh, if you want on demand. You sort of always relied on their goodwill. So I think that we are going to talk about funding at some point. But once we got some kind of funding, um, some good, you know, generous funding that we got, I've got a fellowship, and I'll, I could say something about that later. We have a small core staff, so I'm still the editor slash publisher, and then we have a managing editor who is uh, Boima Tucker. He's the only full-time employee, and he is a DJ. <laughs> he's a record producer. He's also he's you know incredible writer. He wrote his MA actually with me at the New School. He wrote his uh, Master's in International Affairs with me. And working with him, I realized, okay, him and I, we could build this next phase together when we have to now establish something more permanent, like a staff, have an infrastructure. We have one staff writer who lives in Johannesburg, William Shoki. I think he's currently studying at WITS for a postgraduate degree. We have two copy editors, um, Andrea Meeson. I don't know if Ben knows her. She used to do a lot of copy editing, or probably still does for Chimurenga, and uh, Anwar Omesh, who's of Libyan uh, descent, who's our other copy editor. And then we have a video editor. So we historically did a lot of text, but we are beginning to 
looked more into the possibility of producing more kind of video content. So we brought in Ebony Bailey. She became our video editor. She's currently in Joburg with William, and we're trying to work on a film that we're making about the climate struggle in the Eastern Cape of South Africa. And then finally, we have an editorial board. They're not involved in the everyday work of Africa as a country, except now and then we take inputs from them and ask them for guidance about things we do. And you could look them all up on the website. But I would just say some of them, Sasson Kimsemang, who I know is also written for Joburg, review books. Wangui Kamari, who's in Nairobi um, and is an anthropologist that works on sort of urban issues. Marissa Moorman, who's a historian of, of Lusophone, kind of Southern Africa, Angola, Mozambique. And Dylan Valley, who's a filmmaker from Cape Town. So there are others, and you can look them up. We also have a number of contributing editors. Again, they do a lot of informal line editing for us. But the copy editing, because we have these paid copy editors who are under contract, we just appointed Sarah Hanneberg, who's herself a scholar of sort of French language African film. And she is now translating, like we just had a piece by Mustafa Saha, who's a well-known Moroccan-French writer, filmmaker, etc. And she just translated a piece that he did for us about Omar Blondindou Diop, who was a Senegalese dissident who was murdered by the Senegalese state in the early 70s. So we have a translator who can translate from Spanish and French. And then we have a lot of partnerships that we do. So we do have a partnership with The Elephant, which is based in Kenya, for an exchange of articles. And then we have The Wire, which is run by Progressive International. They also translate and circulate all our copy because we also we are licensed as a Creative Commons license. So anybody could take our stuff and just republish it without having to tell us that they're doing it because everything... So, you know, we went from something that was a lot more dispersed, a lot more on the fly, to, I would say, something that's a little bit more controlled with, like, regular meetings, etc. yeah. Hey, speaking of regular meetings, and also William Shoki, who I love, by the way. What an incisive writer. I'm adding you to his list of admirers and fans. He's got a growing list. I can believe it. It must be extremely long. But I watched an episode of, of the live stream show of the two of you, and you mentioned that that was the first time that you met in real life. And it's interesting you saying that things were super dispersed, and now it's a lot more concentrated. But I think in both of your cases, obviously, the pandemic has put you far away, but also the design of Africa as a country, at least definitely, means working with people that are far apart. So Maybe just tell us a bit about what it's like working across these very different places and with people that are spread all around. For us, it's been quite a challenge because we are a commercial publication. So our revenue base is from online advertising, essentially. And we do pay our contributors and we do pay one full-time salary. So every issue, and that's that's a, on principle, I don't, I don't like to publish without paying because people put a lot of effort into their, especially book reviews, and it's worth trying to pay them. So the challenge for me has been maintaining the relationship with the commercial supporters of the JRB who are advertising in the magazine to make sure that we stay financially solvent. So working with African writers from all across Africa and uh, all across the world has always been part of what we do. That hasn't changed, uh, and that's doable. It's really about maintaining the relationships on the commercial end to make sure that we can continue to publish. And that's that's what keeps me up at night. It literally keeps me up at night because I do my day job here in the United States to 
to keep solvent here, and then at night uh, I turn on the desk light and fight crime in South Africa by promoting by promoting <laughs> books there in South Africa <laughs> to make sure that the relationships are maintained. I mean, we've always been online. The origins of it was that it started as an online blog, the Leo Africanas, then it was an online blog as Africa as a country. So nobody was never in the same place. At times there were some people who lived here in New York also. Some people lived upstate. Some lived on other parts of the U.S. But, I mean, currently Boima lives in Milwaukee. Andrea lives in Toronto. I think Anwar is in Oxford somewhere. William is in South Africa. And Ebony, who's between Mexico and, and L.A. And a lot of the contributing editors are in Cairo, you know, in Abuja. Sasonka, I think, is in Australia. And Wangu is in Kenya. So we're used to it. I've at times I've thought about, hey, we should have an office. But I, I, I sort of given up on that idea. I think it is what it is. We figured out how to have regular meetings. The apps exist. You know, you can use, what is it, Werby for meetings or you could Slack. Trello is a great way to organize like the flow of the editorial process. You know, you create cards, you see how the articles move. So it's gotten really easy to run publications online, yeah. You know, I wanted to speak about American-South African connections, but I kind of feel like the conversation's going more to funding and logistics. <laughs> and it's very interesting to think about this, especially now, you know, in the throes still of the pandemic, which has shifted publication, print, obviously, but also online. Um, so what are your thoughts like on the landscape at the moment of digital publications and what does funding look like when it's either external funding or maybe grants or commercial funding? What's the scene like? The scene is fraught and difficult, <laughs> but I'll, I'll <laughs> defer to Sean here. Go for it, Sean. I would say, and this goes back to something Ben said sort of in passing about, you know, you want to make sure that you pay people. So if you think back, Africa is a country, it never paid people, right? Because it didn't have any money. And also... I don't think even if you did try the Google model or you tried Patreon, I don't think existed. None of these kind of models that exist now that you can raise money. And we actually tried Patreon, but we were never really committed to it because it's a lot of labor, right? To kind of constantly tell people, we're doing this for you. I subscribe to a number of podcasts where you pay people like $5 a month or something or various kind of collectives that try to get people to read. So you become a subscriber and you don't go to everything, but you just love their work. So you subscribe to it. But I would say two things. One is I knew that I could not convince somebody to write for free, if you will, that kind of discovery of writing. If you're a new writer, I couldn't sustain or keep them around for longer than six months. I knew that they would move on. That's just like, you know, you discover something, you want exposure. Also, I can only for so long tell you that Africa is a country is a storefront and your stuff is in the window, and it's on consignment, and if people see it, they'll buy it, and they'll pay you somewhere. So I could sell you that, because you know I wasn't getting paid. I get paid from the new school, it's my job, but I understood that there was a limit to that. I couldn't forever do that. And I think well before the pandemic, there was also a moment in the sort of public discourse about this kind of writing, and to Ben's point, is that the internet became something else. It became, you know, it's commerce. People could now make money off it. And I think there was culturally, there was a shift from the sort of world I grew up in, which is Africa as a country for me was an extension and it still is of a political project. So if I'm working on Africa as a country, whoever's working on it with me, I assume that they understood 
this ethos I'm coming from, from like high school in the 80s, you know, the political ferment of the early 90s in South Africa. That's why I mentioned like the work in progress and the new nation and Samstan and Afrikan. I'm assuming that people understand that they're doing this for the cause, but there was a cultural shift, I think, that happened where the idea of not being exploited and getting paid became part of, right, people wanting to be writers. And I accepted that. So I would say around 2018, I began to, and I mean, it, it dates back earlier to uh, us looking for funding. We'd get like small bits of funding from Al Jazeera, who would like basically commission us to get people to write essays on specific topic. And then we'd pay people to write that. But as a form of sort of like, hey, do this other work for us. If we get some money, we'll throw it your way. But that was not sustainable. And I would say our first funding was Jacobin, which is the American leftist magazine. We sort of, you know, politically identify on the left. So they were the first ones to invest some money in Africa's country. They paid for our website and they paid an initial stipend to our managing editor. We had no money, but they just became our partner helping us out. And I think in that moment, they also created merchandise for us with the bags and the, and the T-shirts. So we began to see, hey, you could create revenue and there is a way that we should perhaps think seriously about raising money. So in 2019, I began to ask around for funding. I realized that it's not a business that's going to make money. And if I was going to get, it has to be somebody with deep pockets who would allow me to do what I'm trying to do without putting limits on it or prescriptions. So my main thing is I was looking for people to fund me that would not put any prescriptions on my politics or tell me how to do the work I'm trying to do. And I wanted to move to this phase, which is what we now doing more and more. If we commission you to write something, we pay you now. It's a very small nominal fee by the standards of uh, um, commercial publication, but we pay people. Um, and it meant that I started you know, reaching out to people. Luckily at that time, and people can look this up online, I won a fellowship called the Shadowwood Fellowship, which is very generous. It's on uh, information, um, free information, open, open source, you know, creative com uh, commons, licensed information. Um, and I got this fellowship for three years in a row. It is quite generous in its project funding. So it gave Africa as a country every year a couple of hundreds of thousands of dollars every year to hire staff, pay writers. So that's why we, so the funding sort of kicked in right before the pandemic which is very interesting that that's when we could pay people. It started at the beginning of the pandemic. This is the third year that I received that funding. Also, at the same time, Open Society Foundation started funding us first with some general funding, much smaller but quite significant too, for three years. And then since then, they've given us another set of funding, which was for two different sets of projects. That has helped us in paying people, in having a staff, and in at least planning the future. But I want to make this clear because I know people who might listen, well, ah, he takes money from this and that. No, I'm not taking money from right wingers. And I'm also taking from money from people who I think whose politics is generally aligned with mine. And my last point is who are not prescribing to me how I should run my publication. I think for me, that's my standard. I don't think we are going to become commercially viable. If you look at the history of those opinion magazines, particularly the American version, they try to become commercial publications, but to some extent, they are really relying on some endowment, some rich person is funding it. That's the nature of these kind of publications. 
And if you're going to do that, you're going to have to sort of figure out that that's how you're going to run them. Ben, do you feel at the mercy of your funders or do you feel like your politics is still protected? Oh, sure. Well, I, I should say that I also conceive of the JRB as a political aesthetic project. And oddly enough, being an ingenue American who came to South Africa and also cut my political teeth on the Cape Flats, <laughs> bizarrely enough, I lived in Gatesville for quite a long time and was uh, very much into the political scene there, strangely. After, of course, everything went down, I wasn't there in the 80s or the early 90s. So the intellectual heritage is similar in that it's a political project, and our other unofficial motto is a luta literaria continua. So we try to fight the literary fight, really, um, through the JRB. But in terms of funding, uh, we are a for-profit company that does not make a profit, <laughs> And uh, if there are any rich folks listening who would like to uh, subsidize <laughs> a literary publication or um, any, any endowments or institutions that have a, some spare cash, we're quite cheap, hey? You know, it wouldn't, wouldn't take much to keep us going. That said, we maintain that split between editorial and advertising. So the editorial is entirely independent and we publish what we like. The advertising is something that I run around trying to drum up every month to make sure that we're viable. Uh, it also helps to have an access bond, which I do in, the, in South Africa, uh, so that you could always draw on the access bond in times of great need. So I wanted to mention that in the five years of publishing the JRB, we've managed to make payroll every month for those five years, which is not a small achievement. And we've also paid out more than 800,000 Rand to our writers. The company itself doesn't make a profit, but we do pay, everyone we commission, we pay, and we have from day one, and, and that sum is now almost a, approaching a million rand, which is pretty cool. Whether that's sustainable over the long term is a question, because the COVID epidemic was brilliant for the books industry in the US and the UK, and absolutely terrible for the books industry in South Africa, where it took a massive hit and shrank dramatically by you know more than 10% in some um, estimations. And we rely on that book's value chain for our funding. You know, that's where we get our advertising from. So it may be a case of us having to explore other revenue streams uh, in the future to keep viable, like maybe launching something like a Patreon, although I can't stand the idea, or going cap in hand to a um, rich person <laughs> who has lots of money and likes books. I don't know any such people, but if you know of anyone, just let me know and I'll, I'll make sure you're mentioned in my memoirs. Um, and for now, I think we've secured enough funding to continue publishing for another financial year. And that's the main thing is to keep publishing and continue to try and make that, that monthly payroll. I just wanted to add like a quick point to this. I think it's interesting that in South Africa, except for the kind of old mining capital who have supported the arts, like, you know, Oppenheimer through like various, I don't want to call it subsidiaries, but like, you know, like the way that they've operated in South Africa that the new elite in South Africa, the post-94 elite linked to kind of the new project, right? They buy soccer clubs or a bull, right? The most expensive bull in the right. South Africa and McDonald's franchises. It's interesting that they've never really seen the need to support the arts. Again, without them determining the content or the direction of those publications in that sense of, it's ironic again, right? Of parting with money. And that most of the way that, what do you call it, for-profit, but not you know, profit publications. That's us. It yes. was foreign <laughs> embassies, European embassies that did a lot of that funding True. of those publications that I like, particularly from the 80s and the 90s. Mm. Just surprised that that has not been the case. True. I think what you're saying is very important because I think a lot of the conversation around books is situated as arts. 
But book development in South Africa and the book chain is such a big problem, you know. And mm. it's interesting, Ben, you saying relying on it. This is only in a trade sense, you know. It's only commercial books that, you know, we're talking about right now. But in the bigger sense, investing in books, kids' books, books in other languages in South Africa is so critical. You know, it's the cause that we should be talking about after climate change, but then we should be talking about books. Because it's hectic. It's insane that it's not a bigger topic of discussion in the country. Agreed. Ramdani made this comment, which I always repeat, and I'll be quick, where he said that the only successful post-colonial language project in Africa is Afrikaans. It's the only one that built, aside from English, as an African language. And I know the circumstances under which it built it is controversial, but it built like bookshops, prizes, a book publishing industry, literary scholarship, blah, blah, blah. And there's no other African language. And he said it needed the state to do that. It was a state intervention. Who is that state now in Africa, South Africa, Kenya, wherever, that's going to do that for an African language? And as we know, we're just going to throw our hands up because they're not going to do it. It's kind of depressing. Speaking of states, we also need to talk about South Africa-US ties, right? And links. Both of you being based in the US, right? Straddling countries. How do you think differently of your place of home, having had this experience in another place? And how does that factor into the work that you're doing at the JRB or at Africa as a country? Well, I'm American who lived in South Africa for 25 years and hope to return. I still have an entire life there and not to mention a house. (laughs) So the idea is to go back to Johannesburg as soon as it's feasible. But yeah, there's a really awful book that was published in South Africa many years ago, decades ago, called The Stars and Stripes in Africa by a prolific South African writer, a guy called Eric Rosenthal, who wrote an entire encyclopedia's worth of books on his own. And he documents the presence of a lot of Americans within South Africa in that book, Stars and Stripes in Africa. And it's an extremely white book, I must say. But the ties have been there for quite a long time, and the industrial link is mining. So many people who got their education at the Colorado School of Mines, which is just north of where I live, went to South Africa during the boom and put down roots and became mining people there. And in that wake followed culture because it was possible to move people from America to South Africa and back relatively simply, sometimes through Europe, sometimes directly. And the literary tradition is incredibly rich between the two countries, Uh, the literary and music tradition. When I think of South African-American relations, the first person I think of is Abdullah Ibrahim. The connection in music between the two countries is so incredibly close, and yet the, the traditions are distinct. And then, of course, the literary connection is, is incredibly rich. My friend and colleague, Sapua Mahala, just uncovered a, an incredible series of letters uh, written between Langston Hughes and uh, not Kantemba, but Bloke Modisani, Modisani. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. I'll let Sean speak to that. It does feel like there are two weird industrial and post-industrial, colonial and post-colonial countries that are similar in many respects that allow for a kind of odd fellow understanding in terms of world nations yeah this is a this this is a question for like another hour totally (laughs) i'll be quick on the personal i mean i it took me a while to understand that i wasn't living in south africa so i i came here like as i said in the mid 90s i came as a student i went back i worked for dasa and then i ended up through a fellowship and then i met an american woman we got married i had children 
And I think it was only when I applied for like a U.S. passport because it just made it easier to come and go. That was like more towards the end of the first decade of the 2000s is when I sort of eventually realized, oh, I live here now and I have to concern myself with the, the issues of this place. Having said that, I do think that in the imagination, particularly of black South Africa, like growing up, the U.S. was always much more kind of like a place that you could sort of identify with. And I think popular culture, not just what you're seeing on the news or whatever, but there's a long history in which black people in South Africa made connections with and identified with African-Americans. I mean, very complicated uh, relationship that's always been there. Unlike, I think, in sort of mainstream white South African culture, there was always this kind of link with Britain. So in that imagination, it's Britain. I think in black South African imagination, even though the ANC and so on was much more kind of linked to the Soviet Union, ANC never, by the way, had a really sort of pan-Africanist thing. And at a popular level, black people in South Africa did, I think, always think a lot about America, American ideas, see Biko, as we understand, was heavily influenced by the sort of ideas about liberation theology that were coming out of late 60s US. I want to give a shout out to one program that I'm involved in currently. I sit on the board of something called the Atlantic Fellows on Racial Equity, uh, which is 20 fellows, 10 from South Africa, 10 from the US. And they try to have a real live conversation about these connections. So this is Dylan Valley, who I mentioned earlier, He's been a fellow, Hetzo Mweti. There's been a lot of people who have been, you know, involved in, in this back and forth. So there are attempts, not in a formal way, and it also depends on sometimes who the U.S. public representative is in South Africa, like uh, Patrick Gaspard, who I think uh, Ben knows. He was an interesting character, Haitian-American, Brooklyn. I think he brought that in his relationship to South Africa. And if you follow him on social media, he still kind of holds on to that strong connection. So there are people, whether they are in the U.S. government, whether they are informal, whether they through the universities, there's all these partnerships that various universities have. Mm-hmm. One last question. I mean, we're speaking about historical ties or literary ties. What is the readership like of these two publications? You know, where is it primarily located? Do you guys have stats on this or is it your perception? It would be really interesting to know who are your people. Primarily, its readership historically has been North American. I would say the plurality or like 50 plus one. The other side, the balance of it is mostly Europe, in Anglo-Britain. Sometimes, depending if you're writing about a particular topic, it will be France, Germany, or the Netherlands. And then on the continent, it's South Africa, Nigeria, Ghana. That has a lot to do with internet access, but that also has to do with like Nigeria and South Africa. And uh, there's a great study that Bhakti Singapore and uh, Lily Saint did about what are the books that are taught as literature, not just in US, but also African universities. And it's mostly books by South African authors and Nigerian authors. So those two countries are quite big and they also happen to be mostly our readership. Two quick other points. Mm -hmm. They are mostly college educated. They have like a postgraduate degree And it's also used in college courses. So professors read it, students read it. So that's, I would say, that's the bulk of our audience. And finally, like journalists read it. We've had a Mm -hmm. long sort of like critical readership among people who cover Africa. And we do have stats. We do have stats. Lots of it. (laughs) Yes, we focus on our stats quite religiously. And the primary readership for the JRB is big African cities. Johannesburg is number one. 
then you'd be looking at Cape Town and Nairobi, then you'd be looking at cities in, in West Africa and finally North Africa, Egypt, particularly Cairo, interestingly enough. And then after that, uh, it's the Anglosphere. And that was one of the points is we wanted to pierce into the Anglosphere. So New York and London are, are the big ones after that, um, Los Angeles and then um, Sydney. Hey, also just thinking about Anglosphere and Sean mentioning having translation, does the JRB include any reviews in other languages? Primarily, no. We do publish fiction in other languages. We're one of the first publications to publish a pigeon short story, for example. So we do publish creative writing in other languages, but our reviews are in English. I have so many more questions, but I'm very mindful of time. So I think my last question is, what has been a memorable piece? I'm thinking about this now, hearing about the pigeon fiction piece. But over the years, what has been something that's really stood out for you that you've published and you're really proud of? So it's not an individual piece. It is the body of work of an academic called Wamui Mbao, uh, who we started publishing very early on in the JRB and have essentially published once a month or once every issue since we started publishing him. And it's been our great fortune to publish his non-academic critical writing. He is a world-class literary critic who takes on the big books in terms of fiction in the world and fresh big books, which is what we want to cover, and does it with such acuity and incisiveness that if you want to spend an hour just wallowing in great criticism, go to the JRB, look up Wamui and Bao's work, and, and read anything that you find there. Absolutely incredible stuff. I concur wholeheartedly. I'm also a big fan. Sean, tell us what you're proud of. I mean, there's a lot, but I'll single out one. I mean, there's, like Ben said, like body of work. There's authors where I'm like, yo, I'm surprised you want to publish on Africa's country, and then they publish regularly, and you're like, what? But I'm happy. <laughs> I would say the one publishing event that I thought was significant was when Binyavanga, um, Monana was coming out. Remember, he had written... One day I will write about this place and he had, obviously, I think he felt that he had left some things on the table. So right before he's, I think it was his 42nd birthday, he um, gave this essay to Ashal Prabhala, who I think both of you know. And Ashal was acting as the copy editor of it. And Ashal said, hey, Beans wants to publish this for his birthday. So they gave it to Chimurenga. Um, and to Africa as a country, and we were fortunate, both of us, on the day of his birthday, to publish it. And I think it did change a lot of the debate on homophobia, being gay is un-African. I always like to joke that being gay is like as African as jollof rice. So I think it did a lot in terms of that debate. And I was very proud that he actually thought, I'll give it to Africa as a country, I'll give it to Chimurang and Africa, to change the debate. I want to give it to African publications. It made it all worth it, yeah, for what we do. Sean, I think we should also just quickly mention the name of that piece, uh, which was a, a shot heard around the world. I think it was called I'm a Homosexual Mum by Binya Vanguayinaina. Just an unbelievable piece and, and changed the game completely. Thank you both for sharing that. Now we will pay tribute to the two writers that this episode is dedicated to, investigative journalist Christopher Acosta Alfaro, and director and editor of Penguin Random House Peru, Hieronimo Pimental Prieto. Earlier this year in Peru, the two were convicted of aggravated defamation for the publication of the book Plata Coma Cancha, 
an unauthorized biography of politician and businessman Cesar Acuna, who was a three-time presidential candidate. So Ben, could we start with your tribute? So I'm going to commemorate a person via the words of two other people. And a person I'm commemorating is the late Shireen Abu Akhla, the Palestinian journalist who was slain in Palestine um, earlier this month, which has been one of the most tragic things to occur in the world of journalism. And the first person I'd like to quote for that is Dmitry Muratov, who is the recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize in 2021. He's a journalist himself. He received it jointly with Maria Ressa, the Filipino journalist. He's a, he's a Russian journalist. And at the end of his Nobel lecture, he said, I want journalists to die old. And at the moment, they're not, as exemplified by Shirin Abu Akhla. And in commemoration of her, I want to read a piece by Hanin Majadli, who knew her and who wrote in the Israeli newspaper Haaretz after she died. And this is her piece. For us Palestinians, Shirin Abu Akhla was a legend by Hanin Majadli. I remember myself as a girl after the second intifada standing in front of a mirror holding a hairbrush or a remote control and imitating the deep, calm voice with which she ended her reports, Shireen Abu Akhla, Al Jazeera, Palestine. That iconic sign-off, a catchphrase that every Palestinian child or teenager growing up in the shadow of the Second Intifada in the early 2000s, associated with a new Al Jazeera reporter, took on a new meaning on Wednesday, painful, heartbreaking, and bleeding. Who would have believed that the woman with this deep, courageous voice would leave us so soon in such a cruel way? As I read the eulogies, the social media posts, and the reactions to her death, I came to know that there is hardly a girl in the Arab world who hasn't stood before a mirror, a hairbrush, or a remote control in her hand and said these words. Abu Akhla wasn't just another very professional journalist or a great reporter. She was the voice of my generation. She shaped our political consciousness to a large degree, and over the course of two decades was a notable model for commitment, professionalism, honesty, humanity, and quality. It's no wonder that she became an icon. Every time there was a military operation or a war or an incursion by the Israeli army into the West Bank or the Gaza Strip, her voice became our soundtrack. In the days before the communications revolution and smartphones, she was the lens through which we saw the Second Intifada unfold. In many respects, during those difficult times, she was the most important Palestinian personality there was, the one whom the entire world heard and saw day after day, and through whom they were exposed to the injustices of the occupation. For me, she was a presence even before I understood what the occupation meant. It was from Al Jazeera and Abu Akhle that I first learned about the refugee camps. She brought us the faces, the people, the shelling, and most importantly, the truth, everything that wasn't broadcast on Israeli television. I even saw the landscapes of the West Bank through her. Today, I particularly recall her reporting from the Janine refugee camp, not only because her dispatches from there had made such difficult viewing for a young person, or because it was the place where she met her death, but rather because she made me aware of how kind its inhabitants had been to her. She had been with them for 20 years, and they had insisted that her funeral procession leave from the camp. It wasn't just that she covered them, but that she had become their voice. Israelis don't understand the depth of our anger and sadness. For us, the Palestinians, Shirin Abu Akhla was a legend. The entire Palestinian nation in its homeland that stretches from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, both in exile and in the diaspora, in villages, cities, and refugee camps, feel a sense of collective grief. That is the reason for the many tributes, for the demonstrations everywhere. Shireen Abu Akhle was the voice of the Palestinian who has no voice. Her loss is so egregious and so profound that despite everything that has been written, I cannot adequately put it into words. I will end with something she said in a video posted on Al Jazeera's website in October. 
I chose journalism to be close to people, and I knew that it wouldn't be easy to change the situation, but at least I managed to bring Palestinian voices to the world. Again, that is uh, Hanin Majadli writing in Haaretz about Shirin Abu Akleh, the journalist who did not die old and who was slain in Janin refugee camp earlier this month. So I was trying to find a poem by James Matthews, who I know it's his birthday this week. Um, he turned like 93. Happy birthday, Uncle James. So the poem I'll read, it's actually in Afrikaans, and it's by Anki Kroch, and it's called Ma. And I really like this poem because it kind of reminds me of my mother. So it says, Ma, ik skryf vir jou a gedig, sonder fancy leesteken, sonder woorde wat reim, sonder bywoorde, net sommer a kalfoot gedig, want jy maak my groot in jou krom, klein handkies, jy beitel my met jou swart oor, en spitswoorde, jy draai jou leiklip kop, jy lach en breek my tente op, maar jy offer my elke aand vir jou jyre God, jou moesie oor is my enigste telefoon, jou huis my enigste bybel, jou naam my breekwater teen die lewe, ek is so jammer mama, dat ek nie is wat ek graag vir jou wil wees nie. I really love that poem. Oh, I love it too, thank you for sharing it. Ja, dis baie mooi, ne? I also have a poem. I mean, we'd originally planned to have this conversation the day after Shireen Abu Akli was killed. So I found a poem that I really like by Palestinian poet Mahmoud Darwish would work really well um, to honor her, but also to think more broadly about doing this work, you know, and hopefully it offers some comfort and some solidarity to the journalist and the publisher that this episode is in honor of. So the poem is called I Will Slog Over This Road, and it's from a collection called Unfortunately It Was Paradise. I will slog over this endless road to its end. Until my heart stops, I will slog over this endless, endless road. With nothing to lose but the dust, what has died in me, and a row of palms pointing toward what vanishes. I will pass the row of palms. The wound does not need its poet to paint the blood of death like a pomegranate. On the roof of Neng, I will cut ditty openings for meaning so that you may end one trail only so as to begin another. Whether this earth comes to an end or not, we'll slog over this endless road, more tense than a bow, our steps be arrows. Where were we a moment ago? Shall we join in a while the first arrow? The spinning wind whirled us, so... What do you say? I say I will slog over this endless road to its end and my own. So, gentlemen, thank you very much for sharing. It's been very lovely to hear about your work and to hear about these two really esteemed publications. May you long continue to slog and keep doing what you're doing. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you to Cindy Lee and to Sean and Ben for sharing your wealth of experience, sage insights and enthusiasm and passion for this area. Join us again next week for another episode of Season 4 of The Empty Chair, A Transatlantic Conversation.
This episode was produced by Andrew Burnett. Thanks to our podcast project executive producer, Laura Buxbaum, to the Penn South Africa board members, Kate Hyman, Yawande Omatoza, and the whole of the board of Penn SA, and especially to our interns. And thanks too to Amy Bell Molazzi and Jahan Jones Radgarski for their support. If you want more information about our work on protecting freedom of expression and free speech and our solidarity with imprisoned rises across the globe, please visit www.pensouthafrica.co.za. This podcast series is funded by a grant from the U.S. Embassy in South Africa to promote open conversations and highlight shared histories. The podcast lineup is determined by Penn South Africa, and so the views expressed by our participants in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the policies of the United States government. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>